Uh, good morning and thanks for having me with you. I bring greetings from that exotic and faraway land called Sydney. Um, I'm still getting used to all of these kind of cloudy, overcast, rainy skies of Perth. Um, I don't know how you live here actually, it's freezing. Um, and I would miss the blue skies if I lived here, so I'm just stirring you. I know, I know Perth skies are always blue, so I'm here at a strange time, aren't I? Um, I'm married to Felicity. We've been married for 25 years, the best 25 years of her life. <laughs> and she's not here to contradict me, so... Uh, and we've got three daughters. My oldest daughter is a university, she's 20. I've got an 18-year-old daughter and a 14-year-old daughter, so... Um, they all keep me on the straight and narrow. My three girls, my four girls at home. Um, we're going to look at Jonah today, um, if you have your Bibles with you. We are in Pentecost Sunday and we're going to look at Jonah as a story about God's invitation to join him in what he's doing in the world. What does it mean when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, draws us into his call on our lives and leads us into discipleship and mission in the world is what we're going to look at today. And we're going to do it unusually probably for Pentecost Sunday. We're going to do it through the story of Jonah. So Jonah chapter 1. And you may know something of the story of Jonah. I won't assume that you do. So the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, son of Amittai, and says, Go to Nineveh and preach repentance, because their sin has come up, uh, come up before me. And Jonah says to God, no way, Jose, not on your life am I going to Nineveh. So Jonah jumps on a boat. He heads west across the Mediterranean towards Spain. And as he's headed west across the Mediterranean towards Spain, a massive storm brews up that threatens to tear the ship apart. The sailors already know that Jonah is a prophet who's been fleeing from the voice of the Lord. But they cast lots and they're still trying to work out who's responsible Jonah says, it's me. So they pick up Jonah, uh, following his guidance, and they throw him overboard into the ocean. He's swallowed by a great fish that we sometimes call a whale, and he spends, you know, days, three days and nights in the belly of the whale. And imagine this scene. The whale eventually vomits him up onto the beach, and he's lying there covered in fish guts and scales and his eyes are blood red and his skin is pasty white because it's been bleached by the gastric juices of the belly of the whale and he drags himself hand over hand into Nineveh saying repent repent I don't know why his voice is hoarse but let's just go with it repent repent he drags himself into Nineveh and the Ninevites think this guy is either a madman or he's a prophet of God. And they go with the former and they decide to repent and God relents from destroying Nineveh. Now when you get to the end of the story, I think it's hilarious. The narrator has a great sense not only of the dramatic but also of the humorous. You get to the end of the story and there's probably the greatest dummy spit recorded in antiquity. Jonah goes up onto a mountain. He's still hoping that God is going to burn up the Ninevites. He's still waiting for the light show and nothing happens and he's furious with God and we'll get to that part of the story in a moment. Now it's easy for us when we look at this particular story in Jonah to think it's an ancient, irrelevant, fishy tale but actually it's a story of discipleship. Every, move, every moment in this particular drama 
is a story about what it means to join with God in the world, to be led by God into discipleship, to join with him in a mission that is much larger than our own lives, much grander than we could ever imagine, much bigger than we could ever anticipate, to be drawn into something a story that is transforming not only the world, but all of the cosmos. And that's what this story is about. It's your story and it's my story. And we're going to see that as we work our way through it. So there's only four chapters. So we should only be here for another hour or so. Um, No, I'll be quick. Jonah chapter 1 is where we'll start at. Jonah chapter 1 as we walk through the story. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, and said, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach repentance because its sin has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for the port. After paying the fare, he sailed towards Tarshish. Now when I first read this story, I thought to myself, I don't understand what's going on. Why on earth, if you're a prophet, would you flee from the voice of the Lord? And why Tarshish? Now, as a modern reader, we don't always understand the kind of drama of this kind of story or what is signified by the locations. But the ancient reader knew exactly what was going on. See, the Ninevites were a ferocious, violent, bloodthirsty people. They were known throughout the the ancient world as being the people you don't mess with. In, In fact, by some accounts... as they expanded their empire. When they would take over a a city, uh, they would take all of the strong men of the city, they would line them up for miles to the city gates, and they would sometimes, they would take their heads off, they'd put them on stakes lining up to the city gates, as a way of saying to every other nation, don't mess with us. This is what happens when you resist our power and our domination. And Jonah knew that. The voice of the Lord comes to Jonah and says to Jonah, go to Nineveh and tell the Ninevites to repent. And Jonah's like, whatever. God, don't you know about the Ninevites? Now, Tarshish is Gibraltar on the coast of Spain. And in 2 Kings chapter 11, Tarshish is described as a place of exotic spices and peacocks and rosellas and gold and silver. And the ancients, when they thought about Tarshish, they imagined themselves lying on these long, like Perth when their sun is out, these long white beaches with aqua water and dolphins jumping out of the water. They would imagine themselves lying on a banana lounge, lathering themselves up in coconut oil because they didn't know about skin cancer in those days lathering themselves in coconut oil, soaking up the rays of the sun, sipping on a martini. And Jonah thinks to himself, I could go to Nineveh and get decapitated or worse, or I could go to Tarshish and lie on a banana lounge and soak up the rays of the sun and enjoy the good life. And Jonah thinks to himself, it's Tarshish for me. And he flees the voice of the Lord. Now, when we read this story, it's easy for us to judge Jonah, but Jonah's just doing what is the natural impulse for most of us. When the voice of the Lord comes to us and he says to us, join with me, be my disciple, follow my call, our impulse is often to flee the voice of the Lord. It's for each of us, there's kind of a, you know, to paint a metaphor, there's, a, there's kind of an inner Tarshish. 
There's something that draws us away from the voice of the Lord. There's some kind of lifestyle, some kind of indulgence, some kind of whatever it is that we would prefer rather than join with God in his mission and be his servant. And for each of us, when the voice of the Lord comes to us, there's the impulse to run. But the story of Jonah says, you can run, but you can't hide. You can flee, but God is always chasing you. You can avoid God. You can run to whatever Tarshish is for you, but God is always calling your name, always drawing you into his will, always inviting inviting you into his mission and his desire, not only for your life, but also for the world. Run, but you can't hide. God has got your name and he's got a desire for your life. Jonah's yet to discover that. He's on the boat, and the boat ends up in this massive storm. And the sailors, who are seasoned men of the ocean, decide that they'll battle the storm. Now, these are men who are not easily frightened by the ocean. They've been in storms before. But this storm is so violent, so insurmountable, so threatening, that you can imagine them looking at each other and saying, this is where we die. This is where we die. There's no coming back from this. And they say, who could be responsible for this terrible storm? And then they decide that it's Jonah. Now, when I read this, uh, this, this account uh, of the storm, it reminds me of Acts chapter 27 when Paul is on one of his missionary journeys. In both stories, the chief actors are headed west across the Mediterranean. The stories are equally impressive in narration, about equal in length, and many of the movements or moments in the story are very, very similar. So in both stories, the chief actors are headed west across the Mediterranean. In both stories, a great storm brews up that threatens to destroy the boats and to, you know, for all of the men to lose their lives. But in one story, Paul is submitted to God and joining with God in his mission in the world. And in the other story, Jonah is fleeing from the voice of the Lord. Now, it's easy for us to imagine when we, when we think about prophets, it's easy for us to imagine these kind of goat skin wearing, bearded, honey drinking, locust eating, desert dwelling, crazy eyed, madmen. You know, when we kind of imagine the ancient prophets, we have a kind of image in our mind. But who could afford a ticket to go from you know, the Palestine, to Spain. Only a person with money and means. Jonah is not your normal prophet. Jonah is a self-willed, independent, rebellious, moneyed prophet. He's not your usual prophet. And this is part of the reason why I like this story. You know, often we kind of imagine God using people who are our ideal Um, servants, completely submitted to God. Jonah is not like that at all, and it gives me hope, because I know how often I rebel. I know how often I resist the voice of the Lord. I know how often I am self-willed and independent. Jonah is a guy with money and means, and he says to the men on the boat beside him, I know what to do. Pick me up and throw me overboard. You see, this is Jonah all over. Jonah always knows what to do. 
Jonah is a guy who's in control, who's the master of his own destiny, who's resisting the voice of the Lord, and he always has an answer. He always knows what to do. You see this in the various moments of the story. And he says to the sailors, I know what to do. Pick me up and throw me overboard. He hasn't yet learned to submit to the will of the Lord. But it's in the middle of the storm that he's yet to dis- to, we're yet to find out what kind of man is Jonah. Now, your experience might be the same as mine. It's in the middle of the storms of life that we discover who we really are. It's not in the good times. It's when we are broken. It's when our lives are filled with pain. It's when the things that we thought we could depend upon have been ripped away from us that we just stand naked before God. We discover who we really are. It's in those moments when our money, our education, our relationships, our reputation means nothing. We discover all of that can be ripped away from us in a moment. It means nothing at all. Our health, our relationships, our money, our reputation can be ripped away in a moment. We stand naked before God. It's in the middle of the storm that we, dis- we discover who we really are before God. God sees us and we see him. I remember when we lost our third baby. Now, my wife tells her own story. You know, for about 20 years, she suffered with eating disorders and she was regularly hospitalized. So this is during her teenage years and she tells a story about the terrible toll this took on her psychologically and also on her body. And when we first got married, all she wanted was to be a mother. But each of the pregnancies, we would get into late term and we would lose the baby. And the doctors said, you know, maybe you can't have a child because her body had suffered so terribly from her eating disorders. And I remember the third baby. So we actually lost four babies. The third pregnancy was was twins. I remember the third time we lost the pregnancy in late term. And just as she was going to the hospital for an operation, I just felt so angry at God. I remember falling down on my knees on the lawn in front of the hospital here in Perth, because uh, we lived in Perth for 10 years, weeping and saying to God, how could you do that to Felicity? You know, we're talking about a, a story that's got oceans and waves, and this is a bit of a prop, I think. I said to God, how could you do that? How could you let her go through this kind of pain again? How could you do that to her? And you know, for about three or four months, we didn't go to church. I couldn't bear going to church. And I was a pastor of a church. But my elders and the ministry team said, Graham and Felicity, you don't even have to come. Just take time to heal, to grieve, to rage, to, to suffer. And we'll love you. We'll stand with you. We'll journey with you. I was so angry, so disappointed. It's in the middle of the storm when everything feels like it's been ripped away from you and you stand naked before God that you discover, who am I really? Who am I? And it's often only in that storm. And it's in the storm that we discover that God is with us, that he is for us. I'm hoping for drips because we're about to get to the moment where Jonah's in the water. So I'm hoping for... 
I'm hoping that this will really add to the story, but we'll see. Um, it's in the middle of the storm that we honestly discover who we are. And Jonah, you know, we get to Jonah chapter 3, and he's been thrown overboard, and he's in the waves. And look at Jonah, sorry, Jonah chapter 2. Look at Jonah's prayer. Don't miss that Jonah's prayer in the belly of the whale is a psalm of lament. And in fact, almost all of the, the verses and the words of this prayer come out of the psalms. And it follows a typical pattern of a psalm of lament as well. It begins with distress and hopelessness and it ends with a cry to God and a sense of hope and expectation. It's a psalm of lament. But Jonah is in the belly of the whale. The whale sinks down to the depths of the ocean. He can barely breathe because the stench of the whale's guts is filling his nostrils. He can't see his hand in front of his face. It's pitch black. He thinks to himself, there's no escape. This is not a Marvel movie where a hero turns up at the last moment. He thinks to himself, this is where I die. And in this moment, finally, he cries out to God. And he says these words, listen to these words, in my distress, from the depths of the realm of the dead, because that's where he's found himself. I cried out to God. I said, you've hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas. The currents swirled about me. Your waves broke over me. I said, I'm banished from your sight. The engulfing waters threatened me and surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. I thought to myself, from the roots of the mountains, this is where I die. You know, I'm a body surfer, and every, probably every second weekend I go, I go out into the waves. I don't actually use a surfboard. I just body surf. But my wife often says to me, you know, this year I turned 50, and she says, Graham, you're getting old. You're not a young man anymore. Stop putting yourself into danger in the surf. You know, the thing about middle-aged men is we still haven't... Well, I should just speak for myself. The thing about this middle-aged man is that we still can't quite come to terms with the idea that we're getting old, that our bodies are not quite what they used to be. And the other thing about a middle-aged man is, you, is your memory starts to go. And you, you remember the days when you were a great athlete even though you never were, you know. <laughs> you become more and more kind of, you know, these illusions kind of fill your mind and you think, oh, I was once a great athlete and I'm still young and I can do anything. And I get into the waves and into the water and you know those times when you discover that you really are bitten off more than you can chew? <laughs> there have been some moments when I'm in a big swell and a wave smashes me down and I you know when you're clawing up for air and another wave smashes you down and you're clawing for air and you get a gasp of air and another wave smashes you down and you think to yourself, I should have listened to my wife. <laughs> Why didn't I listen to Felicity when I had the chance? You know, many people, that's what life is like. I, I do some counselling with people and sometimes I think, how can one person suffer so much? It's like, I was doing some ministry with a woman just recently, an, an older woman. She was, she'd suffered with the loss of her son, with the loss of her husband, 
And it was like one, dra- one pain after the next pain, after the next loss. And it's like for many people, they're just coming off the air and another wave smashes over them. And this Jonah chapter 2 says, even in the belly of the whale, even when you think you're going to die, even when you feel like there's no hope, even when you can't see your hand in front of your face and you think, this is it for me, even in that place. I've suffered from depression most of my life, probably. Certainly, I've become aware of it more, more deeply in my adult life. There'll be some weeks where I can barely get out of bed. It's very debilitating for me when it comes upon me. There'll be some weeks when I can barely get out of bed and, you know, Felicity says to me, Graham, you've been here before. You'll probably be here again, but we love you. Hold on. Even in this dark place, when you feel like you can't go on, when you've lost all hope, in that dark night of the soul, God is with you. He's there for you to comfort you. You look at the end of chapter 2, and like a psalm of lament, Jonah finally says, even in this place I cry out because you are my God and salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Then we get to Jonah chapter 3, and the whale or the great fish has vomited Jonah up into the dry land. He drags himself into Nineveh, preaching repentance, and the Ninevites are shocked at this spectacle. This bizarre prophet who is like nothing they've ever seen before. Now imagine Nineveh. Nineveh was this great city. And in Nineveh, there were probably four groups of people who had power. There were the the nobles, you know, the royalty. There were the wealthy business people. There were the soldiers because they were a violent civilization. And then there were the priests, the religious leaders. So there were four groups of people. Nineveh was a very religious city. If you went to Nineveh, you would walk down the streets and you would smell the incense. You would see the great temples built into the heavens. You would see the religious leaders walking down the streets in their orange robes, doing whatever they did. It was a very religious city. But the word of the Lord comes to Jonah and says, go to Nineveh and say, repent. Because although you are very religious, you don't know God. You are not worshipping Yahweh. You've domesticated him and you've shaped him in your own image. You've turned your God into a violent, sexualized, greedy, ferocious, self-serving God. You've shaped him in your own image. This is not Yahweh. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah and says, Say to them, repent, or in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. Now, don't lose the yet 40 days, because the yet 40 days, or the image of 40, comes up probably about six or seven times, in the, uh, in, particularly in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. You know, the 40 years of the Israelites wandering in the desert, the 40 days of Elijah running uh, from the Lord and running from Je- uh, Jezebel. Um, the, the 40 days of Jesus wandering in the wilderness. So this image constantly comes up in Scripture. And whenever it comes up, it symbolizes a time of 
of purification. It's about the word of the Lord coming to an individual or to a group of people and saying, will you be mine? Will you be soft and repentant and open so that I would do something in your life and purify you and make you my own? Or will you be hard-hearted and resistant and rebellious and suffer my judgment and my wrath? The choice is yours. And the word of the Lord comes to Nineveh and says, yet 40 days, the choice is yours. And the word of the Lord comes to you and I exactly the same way. And the yet 40 days is spoken over our lives. Now, when I read these words, I get afraid because when I listen to the tone of these words, it sounds a lot like the way Jesus spoke to people who look like me. You know, Jesus reserved his yet 40 days for, for people like me, religious leaders, schooled in the scriptures, who dedicated their life to serving God and serving the, the religious establishment, who were proud of their knowledge and their theological learning. And Jesus came to people like me and said, yet 40 days. You think you are religious. You think you know God. You've dedicated your life to learning the scriptures. You're proud of your religiosity and your spirituality and learning, but you don't know the living God. Yet 40 days. It terrifies me because it sounds like the kind of thing Jesus said to people exactly like me. You know. Um, we could say a lot more about that, but the word of the Lord comes to all of us and he names the idolatry. He names the ways in which we've shaped God in our own image. A God of consumerism, a God of materialism, a God of ambition and competition, a God of individualism, a God that is not just and reconciling and peacemaking and merciful and loving. And he calls us to see him afresh in the yet 40 days. Will we give ourselves to him or not? And then we finally get to chapter 4. The Ninevites repent and Jonah is furious. I love this part of the story. He goes up onto the hill he looks down upon Nineveh and he's still hoping. He's still hoping that God is going to burn them up. He's still waiting for the fireworks up on this hill, looking down upon Nineveh. And he says to God, oh, come on, you've got to be joking. Are you seriously going to forgive Nineveh? I mean, this is why I went to Tarshish in the first place. Because you're gracious and you're loving you're slow to anger, and you're abounding in love. You and I know that he's kind of rewriting history. He didn't really run to Tarshish because God is compassionate. But anyway, let's, let's not kind of interrupt his kind of self-justifications. But he says to God, you know what? This is just like you. So gracious, so compassionate. Oh, I wish I could die. He's having a huge pity party as he's looking down upon Nineveh. And then 
He falls asleep. The Lord causes the vine to grow up over his head. And then the Lord sends a worm to eat the vine. And he wakes up. The sun is beating down on himself. And he says, I just wish I was dead. And God says to him, Jonah, Jonah, have you got a right to be angry? There are 120,000 people in Nineveh. They don't know their right hand from their left. And many animals as well. Did you nurture this plant? Did you tend it and water it? No, but you care more about the plant than all of these people. The withered comes to Jonah and says, Jonah, you're a prophet, but you don't know me. You don't know my love. You don't know my justice. You don't know my compassion. And Jonah, what's worse still is you think that, that this is your story. This is not your story. This is my story. See, when I read uh, uh, Jonah, when I first read Jonah, I was perplexed about the ending. I don't know whether you feel this way, but you get to the ending and it ends in a bizarre way. So the, the last couple of verses, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah and says, you're worried about the plant, you didn't tend it or make it grow, it sprang up. And should I not have more concern about Nineveh? There are, there are 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left and many animals. I'm like, what? What happened? Was the narrator writing the story and he, and he was interrupted? This is just the weirdest way to end a story. The last phrase is, there are many animals. I'm like, what on earth is going on in this story? And then I realized that it's meant to be left hanging it, because it's an unfinished story. The question that God asks Jonah is the question that he asks the ancient hearer. It's the question that he asked the early first century church. It's the question that he asked the apostles and the disciples. It's the question that he asks you and me and sanctuary church as a whole. And the question is, will you be mine? Will you see me? Will you join with me in what I'm doing in the world? Will you submit to me? Jonah, Graham, Mark, Century Church, will you be about my mission, about what I'm doing in the world? Jonah is discovering that this is not his story, that what he's a part of is something that began long before he was born and that will continue to the end of the age. And the same is true for you and I. Our answer to this question is not only an answer that we can give individually, but it's an answer that we give as a community, as disciples individually and as a community as a whole. Will we join God under the vine and say, yes, Lord, I will be yours. Draw me into discipleship. The story of Jonah says to us that you can run, but you can't hide from the voice of the Lord. When you're in the middle of a storm and you feel like everything is about to be lost, loss, the Lord is with you even in the middle of the storm. When you're in the belly of the whale and you can't see your hand in front of your face and you wonder whether you can go on and you feel desperate for some kind of hope 
or light. Even in that darkest of places, God is with you and loves you and is reaching out to you. Even in that place. When you discover that you fashion God in your own image, like Nineveh, and he's a God that has been domesticated according to your own heart and the image of the world, even in that place, the word of the Lord comes to us and says, will you repent and truly see me and be renewed? And finally, the story says to us that under the vine, in the hot sun, naked before God, will you say, yes, Lord, I will be yours. Let me join with you and your mission in the world as your spirit moves on me and your spirit renews all things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this ancient story, this story of discipleship, this story of your spirit drawing us into your call, releasing us into your world, renewing us by your love and calling us to be a part of a mission, a justice, a reconciling work that is much greater than our own lives and even our own moment in history. Call us to be your disciples and your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Graham. Graham has done a, a beautiful job at inviting us to this moment, which is the, the pinnacle of our service, the, the journey that Mike and Deb hinted at earlier that they've been so faithful in is the journey of discovering a God who's offensively more merciful than us and how difficult it is to enter into this comedy of mercy, that this perfect love is a love that leaves no one out and as Desmond Tutu puts it, we all want to hear that God loves us, but how difficult it is, like Jonah, to hear that God loves our enemies just the same. And we're on a journey as Sanctuary Church, going from responding to a sermon and coming forward to a pulpit, to instead responding to Jesus. And Graham has beautifully given us an opportunity through the story of Jonah to gaze upon the beauty of the gospel and to come not forward to agree with a sermon, but come forward to participate in a table. What Jesus gives us is not a theory of salvation. We are not saved by our doctrine of grace. We're actually saved by grace. And what we're invited into is not merely a message in the abstract, but a message contained in a meal. So if you're here this morning and you're struggling, let the struggle be the offense of a God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Let it be the offense, let it be the stumbling block of a God who isn't just somewhat like Jesus, but the mystery of God revealed in Jesus to be love. This morning, the invitation is to come round the table and realize you can't change the nature of God, not your sin, not your shame. God is gracious. God is compassionate. And the difference for us receiving that is whether we in these moments can actually undergo the offense that Jonah was undergoing and say yes to God being that good. Yes to God being that kind of love. 
yes to redemption being that wide. So church, I want to lead us in the response to the proclamation that we are forgiven, that the cross and resurrection is enough, that in light of God's forgiveness, that there is nothing we can do to make God love us more, that there's nothing we can do to make God love us less, that we can come and not merely give allegiance to that, but participate in that. So church, let me lead you in prayer as we gather around the table and say yes to this mercy, this comedy of mercy, this gift that there is no other sign for us than that of Jonah being good news for our hurting world. Let's pray together. Lord, you are gracious. You are compassionate. You are slow to anger and you are abounding in love. Lord, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, in word, and in deed by what we have done and what we have left undone. We have not loved you with all that we are, and we have not loved our neighbor and the stranger and our enemies as you have loved us in Christ. But for your sake, undergoing this revelation that you are this kind of offensive love, we receive your forgiveness here. We run not away from you, but towards you, knowing that what we need is the mercy that you ask us to participate in for the world. So Lord, for your name's sake, for the sake of your son, forgive us and have mercy on us, that we might become a people that participate in your mercy in the world. We confess all of this, reluctantly accepting the comedy of your mercy. And all God's people said, Amen. So church, this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It's prepared for all those who love God and those that want to love God more. So come, you who have much faith and you have a little, you who have tried to follow Jesus, you who have failed in following Jesus, and you who have decided to follow Jesus in this moment for the first time, come, let nothing keep you from love's feast. Leave judgment behind and receive mercy Leave indifference behind and recognize God's family. Leave now, if necessary. Run, go and be a forgiver. Then run back. Because it is God's desire, through the Holy Spirit, that those who want Christ may encounter him here. So all those who hunger and thirst for mercy, come. Amen. Oh, we... One last thing to do before we head out is um, we speak together our uh, benediction, kind of commission that uh, speaks to who we are and who we go out into the world to be. So you're free to join us in, in saying this this morning. Church, we come as we are, but we are sent out not the same sanctuary. He speaks over us a new name to bless and rebuild this city. So we go, broadcast good news for the poor, the blind see, set free the oppressed, and live jubilee in his liberating grace that pardons and empowers sinners like us to participate in God's kingdom of mercy. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.